This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. Welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. I am very glad you have joined us today on our podcast episode. I've got a great guest. I'm very excited to speak with Dr. Walter Block, uh, someone who you probably all know or have heard of, or maybe you're familiar with his work, some very well-known books. Um, Let me quickly just mention that Dr. Block, Walter, is the Harold E. Wirth Eminent Scholar and Endowed Chair and Professor of Economics at Loyola University of New Orleans. And he has been a professor at several different academic institutions through his career. He is an Austrian school economist and a prominent anarcho-capitalist theorist. He is the author of a few dozen books, very well known, Defending the Undefendable, which is very interesting and garnered a lot of attention through the years. And he is also, interestingly enough, from what I understand, an old high school chum and classmate of Bernie Sanders, one of our, well, I won't say favorites, but uh, the infamous Bernie Sanders. Walter, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for coming on to the California Liberty Project podcast. Greg, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Really appreciate your time. So first, I wanted to ask, if I may, if you will indulge me, um, growing up in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, you met and came into contact with a lot of different, very interesting people. From what I've heard, your accounts of of your early years, growing up in a largely probably left-wing milieu, um, possibly almost communist. I don't know if that's fair to say, but far left. Um, And in addition to going to high school or being on the track team or something with uh, Bernie Sanders, you also came into contact at a relatively early age, from what I understand, with Ayn Rand and perhaps saw a lecture of hers at either Brooklyn College or some institution in New York, and then later uh, became... um, perhaps a student or pupil or someone who was um, mentored by the great Marie Rothbard. What was it like coming up in those circles in New York City, Brooklyn at that time? And well, meeting Ayn Rand, for example, maybe your first foray into the liberty world. Right. Well, uh, I was at Brooklyn College and Ayn Rand came to speak and I came to boo and his her because she favored free enterprise. And everyone knows <laughs> that free enterprise is fascism and um, babies will be uh, starving in the streets and it'll just be awful. So we can't have capitalism. It's just evil and inefficient and and very bad. And at the end of the lecture, uh, they announced that anyone could come to the uh, lunch in her honor, uh, even if you disagreed. And I disagreed. I wanted to convert it to socialism. So I went there and um, there was this long table. She was sitting at the head of it with her buddies, uh, Nathaniel Brandon, um, uh, Alan Greenspan, um, uh, and the other chief um, uh, Randians. And I was relegated mm-hmm. to the other end of the table. There were no no seats there. And I turned to my neighbor and said, you know, capitalism is evil. Socialism is great. And he said, well, I don't really know all that much about it, but the people who do are at the other end of the table. So I stuck my head in between Heinz and Nathan's, and I said, there's a socialist who wants to debate someone. I was maybe 20 years old, maybe a sophomore in college. Brandon, maybe 35, ran 50 give or take. And um, Brandon was very, very generous, very, very nice. Um, and he said, look, I'll, there's no room at this end of the table, but I'll come to the other end of the table and talk to you. Uh, but you have to make two promises. One, you don't allow this conversation to lapse until we settle it. And two, you'll read two books that I'll recommend. 
Well, I talked to him for a half hour, an hour, and I read the two books, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand and Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And I went to Brandon's house and Rand's house in Manhattan uh, four or five times, and I was converted. I was then a um, limited government libertarian, uh, Hazlitt type, uh, Ayn Rand type, whatever. Uh, yes, we have to have a government, but it's very, very limited, armies, courts, police, that's about it. Uh, but then I had a sort of a schizophrenic uh, experience with them, approach avoidance, because they were very cultish. Um, if you ask her a nice question, like on page 42 of your book, you said this, could you explain or expand on that? That would be a nice question, and she would answer it. But if you said, I see a contradiction between what you said on page 42 and 150, she would say, get out. She would kick you out. Now, this is very different than the way they treated me when I was um, – being converted. They were very nice to me. They would never do that. I'd asked all sorts of stupid questions, and they would give me the Hazlitt-type answer, and that was it. But this was really awful. <laughs> yeah. But I knew no other libertarians or no other free enterprises. Everyone in Brooklyn, where I was from, was a was a, practically a commie. So I would stay away for three or four months, and then I'd come back, and then I'd leave in disgust at the cultism. And now I'm in uh, Columbia University getting my PhD, and um, my friend then, uh, Larry Moss, said, you got to meet this guy, Murray Rothbard. He's an anarchist. And I said, oh, anarchists? I don't want to meet any anarchists. They're, you know, crazy. Uh, we need government. I was sort of, you know, ran, randish, not cultish, but randish. And then uh, his roommate, Jerry Wallows, ganged up with Larry against me, and they uh, frog marched <laughs> me into seeing Murray. And I met Murray, and he converted me into um, free enterprise, <laughs> uh, that is anarchism, uh, anarcho-capitalism, in about 10 minutes. Uh, he used Hazlitt against me, um, against my statist views. Uh, uh, Hazlitt would say, well, look, we don't really need the government to run the post office. So we could do it privately, and here's why. And it would be more ethical, and it would be more efficient. And Murray just applied that. Well, why not apply that to police? Or armies yes. or courts, and the light bulb lit on top of my head, and um, I was then an anarcho-capitalist. And um, Murray was um, my mentor, my guru, my friend, and um, I sort of date my present views to meeting Murray. Excellent. Now that's a really cool story. Um, very good. Now Murray was not your formal thesis advisor through grad school, was he? He was more of an informal mentor and, and friend. Yeah, my uh, thesis advisor was Gary Becker and then Bill Landis. Uh, uh, Murray was a professor at Brooklyn Polytech, uh, not at Columbia. We both got our PhDs from Columbia, but Murray was never a professor at Columbia. Okay, got you. Um, one more question on that while we're kind of touching upon um, academia, and this is an adjacent question. For young people, um, particularly undergrads looking to, to dive into the milieu of higher education, speaking of socialism and far leftism, do you have any recommendations for young people where they might go as far as academic departments, economics, business, um, maybe political science, where they could apply that has a relatively free market department? And, and then certainly if they choose to continue on to grad school in, in economics, any, um, any recommendations there? Well, uh, for grad school, there are only two grad schools uh, that have Austrian, uh, Austro-Libertarianism, and that's Texas Tech and George Mason University. There are several places in Europe, um, uh, Guido Holtzman, uh, uh, 
Jesus, where did the Soto, uh, Matt Mackay uh, in Europe uh, would be good places. Uh, for undergraduate, Grove City uh, College would be good, plus these other two, um, uh, Texas Tech and George Mason. And um, my own school, uh, Loyola University, we have three professors who are all anarcho-capitalist um, Austrians. And if you want to study with me um, and my colleagues, uh, I would recommend uh, Loyola University, New Orleans. Excellent. Well, thank you for that recommendation. I appreciate that. So speaking about anarcho-capitalism, probably a lot of our friends and many of your colleagues in the liberty movement, broadly speaking, but specifically ANCAPs, anarcho-capitalists, you know, with respect to this latest, uh, well, atrocity by Hamas in Israel, I saw your recent uh, article, of course, the op-ed piece that you co-published, I believe, with Alan Fuderman. And I was very interested because, one, it, it took a, well, it was a clear moral stance against Hamas's atrocities, which I appreciated um, because there are so many on the left right now and so many libertarians, certainly so many ANCAPs, who are coming out in a very veiled fashion and trying to be nuanced. I don't know if it's trying to kind of be edgy. I'm not sure. I won't, I won't ascribe any ill motives to them. But there seems to be a, a softness toward Hamas or this atrocity because of perhaps some resistance to the government of Israel's policies, to government policies. However, on a very personal level, if we look at morality, what was done to those innocent people in southern Israel I completely agree with you as far as those atrocities. They need to be called out. Hamas needs to be held responsible. And I commend you, you came out and took a strong moral stance when a lot of other ANCAPs and libertarians have been kind of flirting around with the Free Palestine movement. And it seems to be kind of in vogue to take more of that stance. Could you elaborate more on, if you'd like to, color in your thesis more and how you came to your view perhaps with the defense of natural rights, property rights of those uh, those innocent people in Israel. And then maybe maybe in next question, we could address some of the objections that ANCAPs and other libertarians might have on the Palestinian side. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you to elaborate because it was a fascinating piece in the Wall Street Journal. Everyone listening should, uh, should read it. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I agree with your characterization of what Hamas did, atrocity. Uh, very accurate, um, despicable, disgusting, uh, whatever, you know, words sort of fail you in terms of what they did to innocent people. It was just disgusting. Well, the way I look at it, and um, I'm a John Lockean, Murray Rothbardian, uh, how do we determine property rights? Well, the way we determine proper property rights, legitimate titles to property is through homesteading. I mix my labor with the land, I clear some rocks, I clear some trees, I put in a corn plant or two, and uh, after a year or so or whatever, I own that land. And you domesticate a cow, and um, uh, you own the milk, and I own the corn, and now we trade, and I own the milk even though I didn't produce the milk, and you own the corn even though you didn't produce the corn, but we can trace it back to voluntary interaction, namely barter in this case, and then uh, homesteading, originally homesteading. So to me, the issue between the, um, uh, the Palestinians or the Arabs and the Jews is one of property rights. Who really owns those territories? Who is the colonist? Who is the imperialist? Who is the, um, uh, theft, the thief of, 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 of land, the land thief? And I ask, well, when did, when did Judaism start? 
Judaism started roughly 3,300 years ago, give or take. The historical record is not exactly clear. I can't say to the exact month or week or anything, but roughly 3,300 years ago. When did Islam and Muslimism start? In the 7th century, 600, 7th century, somewhere in there, and it's maybe 1,600 years old. Uh, Christianity is halfway between the two of us. Um, the Jews are the oldest, 3,300. Christians, 2,300. Um, Muslims, uh, Islamists, um, uh, call it, um, uh, I don't know, 1,600 years. So who, who homesteaded first? Well, the Jews. The first temple, the second temple, the third temple was way before uh, Muhammad uh, was born. So if there's any issue as to who is right and who is wrong, uh, it's the Jews are correct. The Jews are the rightful owners of the property. The Jews trace their ownership of the property back to Roman times, which was before Muhammad was born. Uh, so if there's any, I mean, that's the libertarian analysis. The libertarian analysis should be who's the rightful owner of the property. And the rightful owner of the property is he who homesteaded it first. Well, the Jews were around twice as long as, as the uh, Muslims, and they weren't just twiddling their thumbs. They were mixing their labor with land, and they were the rightful owners. They got kicked out. There was the diaspora. They, they uh, went from country to country, but they were there way before uh, the, the Muslims. The Muslims came afterward. Um, so if there's any um, issue as to who owns it, it's... Uh, it uh, should be resolved in favor of the Jews. That's one way to look at it. That's the libertarian way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, you know, why do the Palestinians hate the Jews so much? Is it only because of stolen property? Not really, because you had pogroms uh, in 1929 uh, in Hebron, uh, where uh, Jews were slaughtered in an early atrocity, to use your word. And by at that time, there was no Israeli government. There was no settlers. There was no um, dispute over property. It was just hatred of Jews. They are, I take my, tip my hate hands, I tip my hat to them. They are good haters. They are excellent haters. Uh, and they hate Jews. I'm not sure exactly why, but they do. So that would be a different explanation as to why the atrocity uh, occurred. But I think from a libertarian point of view, it is uh, based on uh, on homesteaded property, and, and the Jews are, uh, are in the right on that issue. Now, the next question you ask, well, why don't all libertarians uh, support this? And uh, why are there many libertarians who are either equidistant or uh, on the one hand this and on the other hand that, or on the Palestinian side. And I think it traces to a uh, uh, an article that Murray Rothbard wrote. I forget the exact title. It's something like um, Peace in the Middle East or, or something like that, where he took the Palestinian side on the basis of property rights. So you ask, well, mm-hmm. how can this be uh, if the Jews were there first? And my main critique of Murray, and, and in our book uh, with my co-author, Alan Fruderman, we devote a whole chapter to attempting to refute this. Now, look, I revere Murray Rothbard. I, I think the world of Murray. Murray is Mr. Libertarian. Murray is magnificent. He's the best economist and the best libertarian theorist. But I don't agree with him on every last issue, and I certainly don't agree with him on this one. And my main 
divergence from his views is he sort of goes back to 1905 or 1895, when, yes, there were many, many Arabs there and not that many Jews. And he was saying, well, property titles started then. Well, I said, no, yeah. no, no. With, with Zionism, when that began to come into effect. Zionism, late okay. right. Uh, right. He's saying yeah. that the Zionists are wrong because uh, it wasn't an empty place, although there was a lot of swamp and, and desert there, and 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 the Jews uh, own the the arable land and the Arabs own swamps, which they never homesteaded. But the point is that there were many more of them there, and the reason that there were many more of them there is because the Jews were there first. The Jews had a better economy than in Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or uh, elsewhere, um, Jordan. And the Arabs floated uh, in in order to get better jobs. So they were there. Yes, they were there. And if you start your analysis in 1895 or 1907, well, then I can see Murray's point. He's got a very good point. But uh, I think we have to go back a little further, uh, 2,000 years. Now, you might say, well, what about a statute of limitations? You can't go back 2,000 years. You, have, you go back to 1895, at least there are records. But the way I understand proper libertarianism is there is no artificial statute of limitations. You can't say, well, it's 150 years and that's it. Because suppose you go back 151 years and you can prove that you were the rightful owner. Look, I, I have a wristwatch and it's um, it's got a picture of your grandfather on it. And what happened is my grandfather stole it from your grandfather and gave it to my father who gave it to me. Well, if you can prove that it's your grandfather, I don't care if it's 2,000 years ago, you're the rightful owner of it and I should give it to you. Uh, now, there is a natural statute of limitations, namely the further back in history you go, the harder it is to prove anything. Your grandfather's picture might have atrophied in 2,000 years, and you can't prove it, and then it's tough luck on you. So I agree that there is that sort of a statute of limitations, but not a um, any arbitrary one. And half of our book is trying to establish uh, that the Jews owned the land 2,000 years ago. It was a Herculean task, and I think we, we demonstrated it. So to summarize, uh, I think the, the proper libertarian view is that the Jews own the contested areas. Why do the many libertarians following Murray uh, uh, don't agree? Well, they start too late in history. They don't go back far enough. Okay. So can I ask you a few good faith questions? Because I really am interested in in your uh, responses. I think a lot of good faith um, ANCAPs and libertarians would, would say that if we look at things not as groups of people, but as we look at individual settlers or individual either Arabs or Jewish people who are living there uh, in the 1890s or the 19, you know, 1948 or, or what have you, they would say, let's look at it with individual farms, individual homesteads, individual settlements, perhaps. And in 19, I believe, 47, 48, there was what the Palestinians call or what the Arabs call, I believe, the Nakba or the catastrophe, where I think the facts are correct that seven to 750,000 um, Palestinian Arabs were moved out um, by force or by coercion or what have you. And I'm trying to be totally fair here. I think that that act perhaps gets rankles a lot of property rights uh, libertarians and ANCAPs because they say that there was a government, maybe the UN or the new Israeli government that moved many of these people out and they were forcefully removed from their land. 
How, how would you respond to, to that charge, uh, Walter? Well, I think those are very good questions, and I'm delighted uh, to answer them because if, if we're not going to um, uh, get into the nitty-gritty, we're not going to be able to answer these questions. Uh, sure. I think you really have two questions. One is this individualism versus group uh, mm-hmm. business, and I admit yes. that um, – uh, we can't prove that it was uh, Joe Blow's family 2,000 years ago. It was rather Jews. Well, look, let's get back to this wristwatch that um, my grandfather stole from your grandfather. I'm assuming that your grandfather would have given it to you. Uh, rather, your grandfather would have given it to your father. And I'm also assuming that your father would have given it to you. And actually, mm-hmm. what happened is my grandfather gave it to my father who gave it to me. Well, where do I get that assumption? Well, <laughs> you have to make some sort of assumption if you're going to go back in history as to what would have happened. And the uh, assumption we're making is that the Jews would have given it to other Jews. They would have given it to their families. But uh, 2,000 years ago is way too far back in the past to say, well, it was um, uh, Jaime Rabinowitz's uh, father. Uh, we, all we can establish is that there was Jews. Well, I think that that's mm-hmm. not unreasonable, uh, just as it's not unreasonable that I should have to give you this wristwatch back because I'm assuming that your grandfather would have given it to your father. I have no uh, uh, – it's not praxeology. It's not uh, necessarily true. Your grandfather might have hated your father, his son, and given the watch to, to my father. Who knows? But <laughs> – you have to have some sort of assumption here. And I think that it's not an unreasonable assumption to say that the Jews would have given it to other Jews and the Christians would have given it to other Christians and the Muslims would have given it to other Muslims. Okay, the second point you make is uh, the Nakba, the catastrophe. Well, look, what happened in 1948 when Israel was um, declared a state, uh, there were five countries that uh, went in there and attacked. But before they attacked, what they did is they sent a message to all the Palestinians and the Arabs living in in the Jewish area. And they said, get out. Because if you get out, then we can slaughter everyone. Whereas if you're there, uh, it's going to be rougher on us. It's going to be tougher for us to figure out who the good guys and the bad guys are from our point of view, namely the Jews are the bad guys and the Arabs are the good guys. So Arabs, get out. We'll have a, a quick war, and, and in about a week, we'll wipe out all the Jews, and then you come back, and, and everything will be hunky-dory. And the Jews improperly were saying, hey, don't leave these vineyards and these farms. Uh, stay with us uh, improperly because the Jews really own that stuff in the first place based on 2,000 years ago, and the Arabs, their land titles weren't as kosher as, as they should have been. But the point of view is, you know, a lot of people say, well, they just went on vacation. Well, not exactly. They didn't exactly go on vacation. Take another example. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm the getaway driver for a, a bank robber. Uh, and the, the bank robber... Um, uh, uh, kill some people in the bank and now they come out and, and I drive them away. Am I guilty? Well, I didn't do anything. Uh, I didn't violate the, the non-aggression principle. All I did is drive. Well, <laughs> I was aiding and abetting the gang. I was uh, a part of the gang. I drove him to the bank, and I waited there, even though it was a danger to me. The police could have come, and then I drove him away to to safety. Uh, Yes, I didn't pull any triggers, but I was not totally innocent either. Well, the uh, people who fled 
uh, in 48 were not totally innocent either. They were more akin to a bank robber, namely, they were aiding and abetting the um, the five countries' uh, uh, armies uh, who were going to slaughter all the Jews. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not saying this is a, a perfect case. There might have been 1% of the people who were on vacation uh, or, or just had to go visit Egypt or whatever. But a, an awful lot of them were not so innocent. Uh, they were cooperating. They were aiding and abetting uh, Israel's enemies. Now, look, uh, at the time that uh, the uh, Palestinians lost their property uh, to the Jews and, and want to get it back, there were many, many Jews in Egypt, in uh, Syria, in uh, Lebanon, in Jordan, in uh, other countries. What happened to them? Well, they all went to Israel because they were kicked out of these countries. So if there's any ethnic cleansing, it was on the other side. The other side was ethnically cleansing. The, the Jews were not ethnically cleansing. And then there's this uh, claim of apartheid. Well, you know, apartheid, the, the, Arabs, uh, the Arabs are treated better in Israel than they're treated in um, the Arab countries. Uh, the, the women are allowed to drive a car. The gays are not tossed off at the top of buildings uh, in Israel, and they are uh, in, in uh, these Arab countries. Um, uh, then there's the fact that um, the Arabs are uh, have a political party in Israel, and they're even part of the Knesset. So this idea of ethnic cleansing and apartheid and all these uh, charges are uh, are highly problematic. Yeah, and you you brought up a really interesting point. And I think it is one of the big, you know, and I'm I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to gather information and really trying to be nuanced in looking at this. Although I can clearly call out atrocities and evil when we see murder. I will always do that. But so backing up to the uh, refugees uh, question, I've always found it curious and I've always thought I need to do more reading on this. I need to learn more about it. The refugees or the Palestinians, um, how come they were not taken into, as you, as you alluded to, Jordan, um, if Gaza is currently in the world's biggest open-air prison, as I hear all the time from our libertarian friends and from many others on the left often, you know, I'm, I'm willing to hear that. What's the evidence for that? But I say, okay, if it's the world's biggest open-air prison, then Egypt is a co-warden, right? Egypt is right there to the, to the southwest. And I really have that honest question, why are the Palestinian Arab people, these these Muslims, why are they in, why are they not welcome in places like Jordan or, um, of course, Egypt? Famously, um, that to me is a very that's a very important question to have answered. Well, do you have Do you have more of a of a thought on that? Yeah, let, let me give you an answer to that. Um, the uh, book that we uh, wrote, me and Alan Fruderman, uh, has a forward by Bibi Netanyahu. And a quote from Bibi Netanyahu, uh, this is a paraphrase, I don't remember his exact words, but it was something like, if Israel disarmed, there'd be no more Israel. We'd all be dead. If the Arabs disarmed, there'd be peace. Now look, uh, Israel left, um, uh, the Israelis, um, uh, the Israeli government took all the Jews out of Gaza uh, they took them out, I think it was 2005 or 2007, and they could have had a, uh, a Hong Kong of the Middle East. Uh, they, they were right near Israel, and Israel has a lot of high-tech stuff. Yes. And, um, 
and they were given all sorts of materials to build houses and pipes to build um, plumbing. Instead, what they did is they built tunnels under under the border uh, to mm-hmm. try to get into Israel to engage in in mass murder. So uh, that's 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 a big problem. Now, this open air prison. Why is it an open air prison? Because they keep trying to uh, send out rockets. They put their rocket launchers in the middle of a hospital. And uh, or in the middle of a, of a mosque or in the middle of a, a school, and uh, then they shoot rockets into Israel, and then they have these tunnels where they try to get in and, and murder and rape um, uh, Israelis. And uh, October seventh was not the first time they did this. Well, of course it's a it's a prison because they deserve to be prisoners because they are violating the non-aggression principle of libertarianism. And as Bibi Netanyahu said, if they stop this, there'd be peace. There'd be no uh, prisons, um, uh, uh, no pr- uh, open air prison or, or, or anything else uh, of the sort. So I, I uh, that would be my response to that accusation. Yes, and I I do think about in in the situation of Gaza, it was returned, I believe, to the Palestinian uh, Muslim people in I believe two thousand six or somewhere thereabouts, two thousand five, two thousand six. And again, just an honest, good faith question. I really wonder how come when when uh, the Palestinian Muslims there, the Arabs, when they were given back Gaza, you know, there's still the, the all this rhetoric about it being occupied. And I, I have that honest question. Well, was it occupied? Were these people aggressed against? Or was there just a problem with the 2 million or 2.3 million uh, people in Gaza? Is there a problem? Is there something that's an impediment to them having a, a free society where their economy can flourish and where they can have a state where if they want a state, if they desire a, a functioning government, not just Hamas acting like some kind of um, social welfare program plus terrorist group combined, but if they wanted a functioning civil society with a state, this is an honest question. How come they couldn't have that? I, I guess some libertarians might say, well, you know, lib- essentially Israel is putting sanctions on them or Israel uh, has created conditions that would prevent um, the Palestinian self-rule. I don't know if I'm totally doing their argument justice. I'm not trying to undercut their argument. I'm trying to understand how come in 15, 16, 17 years, uh, the Palestinian people could not uh, create a civil society and perhaps a government that they would want to live under. Is it the fault of Israel, in other words? No, I I think it's hatred for Jews. If they didn't have hatred for Jews, uh, they would live as peaceful neighbors. Look at how Israel treats the Arab citizens of Israel. They treat them very well. Whenever uh, they're uh, uh, queried as to whether they'd like to be part of Palestine, uh, Palestinian government, they say, no, 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 but we want to stay in, in Israel. Uh, because what Hamas and uh, the PA stand for is hate, hatred of, of Judaism. Uh, if these people were peaceable, and they didn't make tunnels, and they didn't have rockets, and and they they were just peaceable. Uh, there would be there'd be no problem. Uh, so I, I think uh, they could have been the Hong Kong of uh, of the Middle East if they were peaceable, but they're not peaceable. They're uh, based on hatred and and uh, committing atrocities, and they have this view that what is it from the sea to the river, the whole thing should be Arab, and and the Jews should be kicked out or or killed. No, not not kicked out, killed, because Hamas not only wants to kill Jews that are in Israel, Hamas wants to kill Jews anywhere in Brooklyn. 
now they might not want to kill Bernie Sanders. I'm not sure about that. Bernie Sanders is Jewish, but they can they can have no better um, uh, supporter than Bernie Sanders. So I'm not sure if Hamas would kill Bernie Sanders. That would be an interesting question to ask a, a Hamas person. <laughs> and we certainly hope not. But uh, yeah, it might be a it might be a scary answer. Let me ask too specifically talking about the Temple Mount itself. I cannot believe a piece of real estate. Um, and I know it's it's sacred to, I believe, Muslims and Jews. So I'm going to talk respectfully about that property. But obviously, historically, the facts are it was it was the site of the Jewish temple. Just that's the fact before um, the Muslims were in Jerusalem or had a part in East Jerusalem. And again, honest question in terms of property rights, at what point did the Jews give up their property rights to that temple site, which certainly I believe for the second temple, was the second temple destroyed in AD 70, I believe, but even possibly is that the the similar site to the first temple? I mean, this goes back hundreds or or thousands of years before um, the fall of Jerusalem, before the Muslims sacked Jerusalem in AD 636. So again, asking these questions of of libertarians and liberty-minded folks who respect property rights, why don't we turn the clock back to 636? Um, who was living in Jerusalem at six, in 635 AD, 634? Um, certainly some Christians, um, certainly a lot of Jews, and then a lot of other people, I believe. But um, I don't know if there's a question in there, but I do think about property rights to the Temple Mount itself, uh, Walter. It, it seems very charged at this point, and I'm not even advocating doing away with um, any kind of Muslim holy sites there. I think that ship has sailed, but it is extremely volatile. Um, that little piece of real estate, I find it incredible. Yes, I, I agree with you. It, it, but the answer is clear. The Jews are uh, date back 3,300 years. The uh, Muslims date back uh, 1,600 years. Uh, the Jews were homesteading land before there were any such thing as a Muslim, before the birth of Muhammad. Uh, so uh, it seems like case closed if you go back that far. Now, if you just go back to you know 1903, uh, then things look differently, and I think uh, incorrectly. And to answer your question, did the Jews ever give up this land? No. The Romans kicked them out, but they didn't uh, uh, give it up voluntarily. Uh, so look, if I, you have a lovely hat, and I'm going to grab your hat, and I, I steal it, you didn't give it up. I, I just grabbed it from you. And and injustice, you should get it back. Well, the Jews should get it back because they were there first. Can I ask you, uh, we just have a few more minutes and I want to respect your time. Let me ask you on the current situation in, in Gaza, uh, because I, I do have concerns. Certainly, personally, I want Hamas to be destroyed. I want them to pay for what they have done certainly to all the innocent Jewish civilians in Southern Israel, but then also to to our countrymen, uh, the Americans, I believe uh, 27, 28, maybe 30 Americans were killed and several Americans taken hostage as well as other innocent people from around the world. Um, that's despicable. Uh, it, it cannot be abided on Hamas's part. But with the new, or the impending ground incursion into Gaza, and we're recording this on a Friday, we don't know exactly when this is going to begin. I think Biden has been kind of trying to block them and, you know, whatever's going on with the Biden administration. But the IDF keeps talking about this ground incursion into uh, Gaza, coupled with a lot of military air raids and bombings and whatnot. What is the proper libertarian response here to all of the innocent Palestinian civilians that are 
probably trapped. You know, I'm thinking of all the young people, the children there um, who are caught between, you know, the IDF and then this terrorist group of Hamas. A lot of us have concern for those innocent folks. And, and I've heard the number that a million um, million human beings there are under the age of 18. I think that number is ballpark correct, but I can't prove it one way or the other. Certainly those, those minors are, are innocent and we want to protect their lives as well. What are your thoughts there, Walter, in terms of the proper way forward, you know, how to make Hamas pay and ensure, and ensure that they cannot destroy the lives, liberty, and property of others going forward? How do we make Hamas pay while also protecting the lives of, of innocents in Gaza? Well, let me answer this in two ways. One, uh, is the U.S. hypocritical in terms of demanding that Hamas uh, be treated proportionately or that the IDF be gentle? Uh, in view of all the innocent people that will be killed, uh, whether a ground incursion or even right now without a ground incursion with all the bombs of the Israeli bombs. Well, how did the U.S. treat Germany in World War II? What did they do to Dresden? They bombed the crap out of Dresden. What did they do to Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Now, I'm not saying that the Israelis should, uh, God forbid, use an atom bomb, but Looking at from the point of view of uh, the U.S. Uh, and and the claim that somehow the IDF should be gentle because there are innocent people there, well, the U.S. didn't look upon that in that way at all. They uh, uh, obliterated uh, uh, Dresden, Germany. Uh, they did the even worse, uh, if anything, in uh, in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and um, uh, Japan in general. So I don't think the U.S. has any uh, standing to say, well, the you know, IDF, you should be proportional, you should be more gentle. Yes, yes, you have to root out Hamas, but you can't do this, you can't do that. The U.S. didn't follow anything like that. When they ended World War II, they ended World War II uh, very, um, how shall I say it, um, uh, very harshly. But to be to be fair, if, if I may interject respectfully, I think a lot of um, a lot of our friends, colleagues, and whatnot would say, "Well, we don't approve of maybe what the U.S. government did in these cases either, uh, because innocent innocent Japanese people, um, innocent Germans who wanted nothing to do with the Nazi Party, one could assume or hope, um, innocent civilians there were were uh, killed as well, and that that is morally objectionable also." Or our government does not represent me. Many of us object to um, some of our governments or many of our government's actions. Well, you remember I said I'm going to answer the question in two parts. The first part was what I just did. The second part is what you're now asking, which I had intended to do anyway. Sorry to jump uh, the gun. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> you, you're, you're a very good interview. You're doing a great job. But I just did want to put it on the record that I had intended to answer it in two ways. One, is the U.S. hypocritical or not? And yes, the U.S. is hypocritical. Secondly, well, what about libertarianism? <laughs> we are libertarians here. We should answer it in libertarian ways. And I'm going to answer this in two different ways. The first is proportionality. What would proportionality mean? What proportionality would mean would be that the IDF should go into um, Gaza and, and start shooting civilians, as many civilians as were shot by the um, uh, Hamas, and start raping women, and start killing children right in front of parents and killing parents right in front of children. And they should do it um, for 1,400 people, give or take. And then they should uh, bring out 200 um, uh, uh, prisoners, hostages. 
if there was proportionality, if there was an eye for an eye, well, then Hamas would, uh, you called it atrocious. And you were quite right at the beginning of this program. It was atrocious. And yet, uh, that's what that's what should occur if there was this tit for tat or eye for an eye. Uh, second point. Suppose that uh, Biden and um, all of the other people who are now calling for proportionality, suppose that's exactly what IDF did. And they've already done too much. Suppose a week ago, uh, they, suppose a week ago they stopped with the bombardment. They just stopped. What would then happen? What what, what would occur? What would occur is that the Hamas and Hezbollah would say that we got a, a paper tiger here. We ripped the crap out of them. We killed fourteen hundred people in the most atrocious manner possible. Not not just the deaths, but the way that they did it. And we took pictures of it, and we showed pictures, and we get, and we had dancing in the street. Uh, and now all Israel does is show uh, shove a, a few bombs down our throat, and then they stop because Biden told them to. Well, what would happen? What would happen is that in a week or two, after they got through celebrating, after they got through dancing in the street, after they got through giving candy to their children, uh, and remember, these are the people that voted in Hamas in the first place. After they got through, they would do it again. And there'd be another 1,400 uh, Israelis and, and maybe 2,800 Israelis because uh, the IDF is a paper tiger. They, they don't uh, react. Look, suppose uh, Mexico did to uh, the U.S. what um, uh, Hamas did to Israel. What would the U.S. do to Mexico? There'd be no more Mexico. There'd be no more Mexico if, they, if, they, if this was not the first time or if Canada did it. or uh, I mean, uh, so... From a pragmatic point of view, we can justify this on the basis of self-defense. Namely, that if Israel didn't do it, then this would occur again, and it would occur again and again until there was no Israel, and no other country in the world would put up with anything like this. Israel, Israel uh, instead of uh, bombs, they, they throw leaflets at people, uh, saying, you know, this is danger, don't go here. Now look, these people, what they do is they put their rocket launchers right in the middle of a, a, of an orphanage or right in the middle of a hospital. And then they say, oh, Israel bombed a, hosp a hospital or Israel bombed an orphanage. Israel is evil. Uh, this is preposterous. Now let me give you a much more technical um, uh, libertarian answer. Uh, how tall are you? About six foot one. You're six foot one. I'm five six. You're a big guy. And what I'm going to do, uh, and, and um, I'm going to get right behind you, and you have a gun and I have a gun, and I'm going to uh, hide behind you. You're a much bigger guy than I am, and I'm going to start shooting at um, uh, the, some guy, Joe. Got it? I'm standing behind you. I'm a bad guy. I'm a very bad guy, and I hate Joe, <laughs> and, if, and I'm afraid if I just aim to shoot Joe, he'd shoot me back. But no, no, no. I've got you as a, uh, a shield. And I hide behind you, and under your arm, I start uh, shooting at, at Joe. And now, Joe, um, I've got you as a hostage. And uh, Joe, the only, Joe wants to shoot me. He doesn't want to shoot you. You're totally innocent. But the only way he can get me is right through you. His bullet will go right through you and get me. On the other hand, you don't much like that. You don't much like being shot by Joe. And you've got a gun. Now, you can't turn around and shoot me. That would be just. 
because I'm the bad guy. But for some reason, yeah, I, I've got you hypnotized. Who knows? You can't turn up. But you can shoot Joe. Mm-hmm. So who is justified to shoot, you or Joe? I say Joe is justified to shoot you. You're not justified to shoot him even in self-defense because – now you have to wait for this. I also concocted this new theory called negative homesteading. We all know what positive homesteading is. You know, you mix your labor with the land, you domesticate a cow. Lockean, yeah. yeah. John Locke. But suppose lightning hits me and I have a, a bracelet which will deflect the lightning onto you. You're an innocent person. Do I have a right to do that? No. Because I was the first homesteader of the misery, namely the lightning hit me. I am not justified in pointing it off on you. Well, who was the first person of uh, homestead misery? You or Joe? You. First I grab you, then I start shooting at Joe. So now let's get back to the Hamas. What Hamas has got is only 200 or so hostages? No. Hamas has got 2 million hostages. All of Gaza, essentially. All of Gaza is their hostage. And what they're saying to Israel is, well, you you can't shoot the, uh, uh, us because you'll hit hostages. And I say, no, no, they're the first homesteaders of the misery. They voted for Hamas, and now Hamas has got them. Too bad. Now, this sounds cruel. But the point is that the... Um, uh, the shield is um, uh, not got the right. The, the, the shield, you're the shield or the Hamasians, or rather the Gazans. You get it? So, uh, and I, I've written two or three articles on the shield and the missile and all sorts of stuff like that. But, but I think the proper libertarian analysis is when the bad guy has a, a shield, the good guy is able to shoot the bad guy even though the shield dies. Now, it, it sounds very bad because there are innocent uh, six-year-old uh, Palestinians, and uh, they're toddlers. Uh, they're four years old. What did they do wrong? And yet, right. they are the shield, and Hamas has captured them. So if any death occurs, it's Hamas's fault, even though Israel shot them. So I now have three arguments uh, uh, that I regard as libertarian arguments. One, what would happen if Israel followed um, this uh, be nice policy? Well, then there'd be no more Israel. Secondly, self-defense. Third, uh, the shield. Uh, You have no right. The shield, life is forfeit. Now, it sounds cruel, and I don't know how else to deal with it, but uh, it's Israeli children versus Palestinian children. And who started this? Who is the initiator of violence? It's not the Israeli children. It's the Hamas who is using the Palestinian children as a shield. So that would be my answer to your very well-thought-out objection. Yeah, I, I guess Walter, where I where I would come from, and I, you know, idealistically perhaps, I don't mean to be a utopian, but I would hope that special forces could go in and incursions and just take it to the top two hundred, you know, leaders in Hamas, take them out, you know, like their equivalent of the SEALs, the Delta Force. Surgically, they take them out. They inflict they inflict damage. They and then we take out, um, or you know, Israel takes out the uh, the financial structure of of Hamas. In a perfect world, that's what I would hope for, because I do think Hamas has to pay for their crimes against the Israeli civilians. Absolutely. Um, but then I, I look at what's happening. It's terrible. The targeting of, of hospitals, 
largely by Hamas. That's largely on them. If you if you're hiding amongst um, children, schools, hospitals, that's despicable morally, um, and it obviously puts uh, it's done on purpose. We all, of course, I mean, of course, that's done. I just would hope in my idealistic way that we could go in or, you know, Israel could go in with their special forces, take out Hamas terrorists, and then surgically de-extract themselves. Um, that's well, what I would could, hope for. Who could disagree with that? Sure. That, 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 that'd be great. But I don't, I mean, IDF, I think it's the best army in the world, certainly man for man. But I don't think they're capable of uh, just shooting um, uh, terrorists uh, and not shooting any innocent people. They, they, this is just um, unrealistic. It would be nice. It would be nice if you could turn around and shoot me. Remember, I'm the bad guy. I'm Hamas. You're in the, that scenario. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, being, but but I stipulate you can't turn around and shoot me. I stipulate the uh, IDF can't do that. They're not that good. They're very very good, but they can't. Uh, kill the um, uh, uh, the terrorists and not kill innocent people. Can I ask you one more one more topic before we wrap up? Um, related to this, of course, but a lot of really well-meaning liberty types um, who I agree with, who you agree with. I would I would venture to say ninety percent or more of the time um, have again kind of allied themselves with this cause of the Palestinians. And I totally understand Palestinian individuals. You want to look out for their children. You want to protect the, the lives, liberty, and property of innocence. Given. Let's put that aside as a given. But yet it seems that there's some kind of affinity. There's some kind of, um, dare I say, affection you know, for the, this free Palestine cause, which lines up right next to memes and flags and banners for, in many cases, BLM, Black Lives Matter and other cultural Marxist um, kinds of causes, you know, like a lot of like trans flags, a lot of uh, go in and let's go for Ukraine. And Ukraine, I'd be I'd love to hear your thoughts on that on a different day. But all of these current thing, you know, the big current topics that the left has embraced, it's amazing that that uh, this free Palestine, you know, the, the Palestinian issue has taken such a prominent place there. Um, there are there are injustices around the world, you know, and I'm always amazed that this Palestinian issue is front and center. Why do you think that is, and why does it align directly on the on the left axis, on that axis of leftist causes around the world? This is always prominent, top two or three, I would I would say. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, and why so many libertarians have have gone in full bore with not even a nuanced approach in some cases? Well. That's that, that's a, t- a good question, <laughs> a very tough question. Uh, I don't know why so many libertarians follow. Well, one reason for it is Murray Rothbard. Murray Rothbard is properly revered as the eminent um, theoretician of liberty, and I agree, he is. He is Mister Libertarian. Sure. But I I think on this sure. one issue he's wrong. However, many libertarians uh, follow Murray Rothbard which is eminently reasonable in any other issue. Very, uh, well, not any other issue. I disagree with him also on, um, what is it, pro-choice versus pro-life abortion. Murray is pro-choice. Ron Paul is pro-life. I think they're both wrong. I, I think uh, evictionism is correct. But but I, I, on one answer to your question is, why are so many libertarians pro-Palestinian? Murray Rothbard. 
Murray Rothbard was pro-Palestinian. Okay. Murray Rothbard is the leader, the intellectual leader of the movement, uh, 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 and therefore they follow him. So that would be one answer. Another sure. another answer would be Jews in the U.S. vote for the Democratic Party. Oh, I think something like ninety-two percent, and maybe eight percent. No, seven percent uh, for the, the Republicans and one percent for Libertarians. We always get our one percent. <laughs> And sure. I think that maybe now this is changing because a lot of Jews who are left liberal Jews who vote for the Democratic Party uh, just based on, um, I don't know, uh, knee-jerk reactions are now going to be thinking twice because, uh, yes, uh, AOC and Bernie Sanders are very pro-Palestinian, but even uh, the mainstream Democrat like um, Biden, uh, Biden is now urging uh, uh, peace. Well, we see what would happen if, if peace broke out right now. They would do it again. Uh, so even uh, even Biden, who is more mainstream than Bernie Sanders, I, I don't think anyone could disagree with that. Uh, the Jews, uh, the left liberal Jews, I think are now going to start scratching their head and say, hey, whoa, maybe we've been backing the wrong horse. Not that we're going libertarian, <laughs> because libertarians are all Palestinian, <laughs> but maybe we'll go Republican. And the Jews are only 2% of the electorate, but the Jews are have more of a megaphone than other people have. Uh, they're wealthier, better organized, whatever. So I think this would have implications for the election if, if they count ballots as opposed to uh, <laughs> having an election with no ballots the way they did the, the last election, I, I think. Uh, I think that uh, there will be a move in the direction on the part of the Jewish left liberals to no longer vote for the Democratic Party, anything like 95 or 92 percent. It might be more 50-50. It might be 40-60. Uh, and maybe the, the Jews will give 60 percent of their vote for the um, uh, for the um, uh, Republicans. So that would be another implication. I really enjoyed this. And uh, let's t uh, invite me again. And we'll talk about Ukraine. And we'll talk about abortion. And we'll talk about many other issues that we couldn't get to this time. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Walter Block, everybody. Um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thanks very much, Walter. Bye. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.